Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the We Don't Mess With Texas Because We Have Too Much To Learn From It edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I'm joined by Erica Greeter, a journalist and author of Big, Hot, Cheap, and Right, What America Can Learn from the Strange Genius of Texas. We'll talk about how the particular economic model used by Texas has worked so well for the state and why Texas, whose economy is roughly the size of Canada's and which exports more than any other state, is so easily misunderstood by people in the rest of the country and the world. And then finally, we'll discuss how the state will be affected by the potential renegotiation of NAFTA that President Donald Trump has indicated he wants and by the president's approach to immigration. Uh, Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so one thing I learned at the very end of your book is that the Don't Mess With Texas slogan, which tourists will find on coffee mugs and T-shirts <laughs> when they visit Texas, actually started as an anti-littering campaign. Yeah, very effective anti-littering campaign. <laughs> it, it also like the toughest anti-littering campaign slogan I've ever heard, I think. I think I think it's delightful, but yeah, it really caught on like wildfire. And now, I mean, it's it's passed into uh, folklore. Right, right. <laughs> Would want to Texas. So your book is a, is about a number of things, but I want to start by talking about the Texas model, especially for our listeners uh, who aren't American and who might not be familiar with how uh, Texas differs from the rest of the country. What are its basic tenets, and maybe even give us a little bit of the historical context for how the state came to embrace it? Sure. So basically, the Texas model just means limited government. I mean, so low tax base. Um, low spending per capita. Depending on the era and time, you can add things like a fair and predictable or, or, or light regulatory climate. Things like tort reform have been added in the 2000s. But basically what it means is small government. And the roots of it go back to the beginning of the state, which of course began not as a state, but as a republic, as the independent republic of Texas, which broke away from Mexico in 1836 and spent nine years as a very, very poor, cash-strapped, uh, underfinanced, under-resourced state. <laughs> so by the time the state joined the union, it had already developed this apparatus where you wouldn't expect government to do much because government didn't have the capacity to do much. And that kind of laid the groundwork for what we see today, which is government doesn't do as much um, and isn't equipped to do as much at the state level as you'd see in a state like Massachusetts, for example, or you know Wisconsin or, or Minnesota. Right. Yeah. Something that is a consistent theme throughout the book, though, is the ways in which the state goes about making exceptions to the model as well. So very low taxes, very light regulation, but at the same time, the occasional embrace of state-driven industrial policy and a kind of uh, occasionally even state protectionism of its own homegrown businesses. Well, as you suggest with the, uh, the littering slogan, there is a very pro-Texas mentality in Texas, right? So the protectionist angle, for example, I mean, one of the really influential things that happened in history was that at the end of the 19th century, the state passed a law, an antitrust law, that was designed to protect small farmers in Texas from northern industrial interests like big twine, um, <laughs> like twine used to like tie your hay together. And that law became very influential when, of course, oil was discovered in vast scale at Spindletop a couple of years later. Um, it kind of kept the wealth of the state in the state. 
another example that gets a lot of discussion lately is that the state has pretty strict lending laws, right? So we were insulated from the housing bust in part because the state didn't have as much as lackadaisical of an approach to lending in the first place. Um, and so that occasionally registers as hypocrisy to outside observers, but it's rooted in, in the 80s, the state had a severe housing bust because it had lent out way too much money. And so there was a massive collapse. So, you know, it, it's, it's not like a, a binding or even necessarily ideological dogma. It's more of a framework, and then there's some uh, building on the frame. Right, yeah. Another uh, theme throughout the book as well, uh, that Texas is a place where other Americans occasionally move to to try things, but also policies that have been tested in Texas often have lessons that can be extrapolated for the rest of the country, even if sometimes those lessons aren't learned. So you mentioned in the 1980s that Texas sort of started with the deregulatory fervor that eventually swept the rest of the country, made a lot of money in the 70s because of oil. Uh, and then in the 1980s, when the SNL crisis started and everything went bust, actually, Texas got a lot of the bailout money for that from the federal government. And everybody was pissed off at Texas for it. And I mean, it, it, it caused a lot of sort of anti-Texan resentment. But it turns out that Texas seems to have learned the lesson from it in the way, at least, in which it approached the uh, housing market. And, you know, it's funny, I, I'm laughing because I read this book. I reviewed a book about California, a new book called California Comeback. And so uh, this book basically it is sort of very, very angry at Texas. Like, there's an entire chapter in this book about, about Texas. And, um, you know, well, they, you know, these, these Texas Republicans say they don't like government or regulations, but then, like, they, like, have all these housing regulations and lending regulations. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, if you, you know, get, get sandbagged by yourself at one point, you're going to hopefully make some changes and, and try to do it again. There's a, there's a very strong undercurrent in the book, and I think in a lot of your your other writing, that sort of a, it's like an argument against a certain form of geographic chauvinism or jingoism. So like the kind of condescension from the rest of the country towards Texas, but you occasionally also will gently chide Texans themselves about understanding why the rest of the country uh, is the way it is. But certainly, I, I think like if you take the sort of most exaggerated form of the stereotypes about Texas, right? It's usually something like, well, everybody has uh, a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. And if you don't, then it's because you're in prison where you'll be executed within the next 30 days or something like that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating it. You write that, okay, there is some small grain of truth, but actually that stereotype is often unhelpful when something happens in Texas that the rest of the country overreacts to. It's also, I think, unhelpful to perhaps other states because and it's an interesting discussion in this kind of point in time, given the discussions about nationalism that are kind of, you know, sweeping the United States, but also much of the Western world. I think that historically, the sort of Texas jingoism is always registered to outsiders, other Americans as, you know, inherently rivalrous, weird, off-putting. Um, but I think for Texas, it's really helpful as far as creating a sense of common purpose in the state, state identity. And so you'll hear a lot in, in state politics, even today, you know, what's best for Texas, what's good for Texas you know, supporting Texas schools, I mean, um, especially in a big, heterogeneous, diverse state, allows us all to be part of a community defined as Texas, not by our race or ethnicity or religion. It, well, what's interesting, too, is that the sort of braggadocio that occasionally we hear coming out of like a Texas politician is often misunderstood outside of the state uh, because it's it's interpreted maybe too literally, whereas its main point is not whatever literal words are coming out of the politician's mouth, but as a kind of rallying call for the rest of the state. In other words, it's it's more of a of a patriotic thing, but it's not meant to be as aggressive or certainly not as malevolent as it is sometimes thought to be by people elsewhere. The the, the sort of 
main lesson I, I took away from the book was not that the Texas model of low taxes and light regulation, um, with a few exceptions, should necessarily be replicated in all of the other states, but rather that states can take a similarly pragmatic approach, one that's appropriate to a state's individual um, historical origins, cultural history, and and I guess its own uh, kind of unique resources, whether those are natural resources or human capital or something like that. Uh, it sounds like that was the lesson you were going for, rather than every other state should look like Texas or embrace the same policies as Texas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, back when it came out, I did this sort of mini book tour and did a lot of talks about it. And at this time, there was a lot of uh, Texas versus California discussion, right? And so that makes sense because they're the two largest states. And in some ways, they're they're similar, I mean, I mean economically, demographically, but um, they have different models. Like California is kind of a blue state model. Texas is a quote unquote red state model. Um, but for me, I actually started switching to doing a Texas versus Massachusetts because I felt like that's a better example of a blue state model making sense in practice, right? You've got a very um, a smaller population, a more stable, like less growth, higher income base, um, of, like one of the highest uh, median educational attainment rates in the country. And so in that context, to have more of a you know big state model makes sense, I think. And of course, that's what the people that state have chosen and voted for over and over again. In a state like Texas, which is more poor, which is bigger, which has you know a bigger geography, bigger population, I think that the lean model is better because it allows for for growth and evolution. There, there is, a, I think, a, another maybe more directly uh, applicable lesson here, too. Um, Texas, uh, and I didn't know this, has a, an executive branch that is constitutionally very restricted, and it's really hard to change the Constitution to give the executive branch more power. Um, it, it strikes me that in the last couple of years, uh, as a lot of people have become worried about what uh, first what a candidate Trump might do as president, and now what a President Trump might do now that he's in the office. One of the sort of angles here that's maybe under-discussed is, well, why did we entrust so much authority into the executive branch in the first place? Maybe having having the executive branch's hands tied, at least in some areas, would have been a good idea. Texas implemented this idea a very long time ago. It seems to have been very frustrating for some of the people who have, in fact, been the governor of Texas in the time since, and maybe some other legislators. But at the same time, it does have its virtues, doesn't it? For a governor, it does in certain contexts, right? I mean, it, it, we have this kind of idea of the all-powerful executive, but they're not. They can't be. They probably shouldn't be because if you have an all-powerful or hyper-empowered executive. You've got uh, one person with disproportionate control. I think in the 21st century, because of the, the media context, I mean, anyone who's the head of state is going to have the power of the pulpit and the power to influence the public discussion. I also think that in a federalist system like we have in the United States, any governor has the power because any state can... Uh, can act against the federal government. You know, I bet that that's another form of checking the federal government is uh, state action uh, via the courts. But yeah, I mean, certainly at a moment like this, when you've got uh, a president like Trump, I think that is a time to appreciate the, the values of checks on the executive branch. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something else uh, that I, I guess um, changed more recently in Texas than it did in the rest of the country. Texas was a solidly democratic state for a very long time, uh, and that only started to change, I believe, in uh, the late 60s and the 70s. But at the same time, the the two parties within Texas seem to be very close, at least on business issues, uh, closer together than they are in a lot of the rest of the country. You, you won't hear, for instance, many Texas Democrats arguing against you know, business interests, like business interests still seem to predominate, certainly more so than like labor, or I guess, other special interests. 
Yeah, I think that's that's definitely been true historically and still is. And it's partly because the model really emphasizes that, right? I mean, in a context where the state is so small and the welfare state is so small, you really need the private sector to be functional and effective um, because otherwise there's not much safety net for people to turn to. I, I mean, for example, at the beginning of this year, or this election cycle with the uh, Hillary Clinton-Bernie Sanders primary, Bernie Sanders, of course, speaks for a more sort of big government populist, progressive, I guess, or, or organized labor type wing of the party. But at the outset, I was like, I, I don't even need to, to follow this primary in Texas. I mean, Clinton's going to win, of course. And uh, and she did by about 30 points in the Democratic primary. Um, it was just that kind of Democrat is a much more, much more natural fit for the Texas Democratic Party, Texas left. You've written a little bit about this before. Uh, you're not like immediately optimistic that, for instance, the state will turn blue. But you do think that, that there is a shift underway. And that part of the reason that that shift is possible is because the two parties uh, have been historically close together, but actually the Republicans um, have been shifting a bit to the right in recent years. Yeah, you know, I've actually thought of this a lot lately, and, and it would be, this is not even a really partisan argument either way. I mean, historically, I've voted for both Democrats and Republicans. Sure, to be clear, I didn't mean optimistic because you yourself were a Democrat. I meant optimistic on behalf of the Democrats, that you thought this would be the outcome. Right. And it's actually, I am optimistic about, um, I, I think that my, my takeaway, and again, this is reinforced, I think, by this year, is that it's really, really good to have both parties be the best party they can be, right, in a two-party system. I mean, you, if, if either party can be in power, you want both parties to be functional and, and thriving. And in Texas, you know, um, after 25 years or so of Republican hegemonic power, uh, we have, you know, a very sort of big Republican party, but but a lot of elections being decided in primary runoffs, which you know has a naturally sort of polarizing effect on state politics, which we're seeing today. But yeah, I think as far as state turning blue, we were the state that had the most. Well, actually, there were only four states that shifted in a quote unquote blue direction in this past presidential election. Um, Texas had the biggest blue shift. I think if you think about the reasons that states like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania flipped uh, from blue to red, from Obama to Trump um, in 2016, the factors that would cause that trend there would apply, I mean, maybe the inverse in Texas, right? Right. Sort of Rust Belt arguments about manufacturing job losses and um, the, the call for a more populist big government approach, that would just play completely differently here. Yeah. I mean, it should also note that um, you write in your book that a lot of people consider Texas to be a kind of snapshot for where America will be in a couple of decades, uh, partly because of demographic shifts, rising share um, of a Hispanic population there. What do you think uh, that means for the makeup of the state and also for the state's politics and, and what kinds of policies might change over time because of that? Well, I think demographically, the one factor we don't discuss very much, but we should, is that in the United States and especially in Texas, um, ethnicity is correlated with age, right? So we're a very young state. Um, we've got 5.4 million children enrolled in public schools in a state of 27 million people. And so, of course, given what a core function of government that is and how it's been described to be in Texas in the Constitution – that that should at least necessitate more focus on education and workforce investment and development. We're also, of course, a, a growing state experiencing both immigration, but also domestic migration. So we're having a lot of people from elsewhere in the United States come here. So, I mean, things like infrastructure issues, the core functions of government, infrastructure, education, workforce, I mean, those should be priorities for us increasingly going forward and might require the state to be a bit more active than it has years ago. Worth noting, um, and this is also something I didn't really know, that because business interests uh, are so privileged uh, in Texas, it is actually the business community that has stepped in to fill the role, uh, in some cases, of 
what you might expect usually from civic society or in some cases even the state. And there were a couple of instances where it was even the business community that forwarded things like women's rights, civil rights. Can you give us a, a little bit more of a flavor of how that has worked over time? Well, sure. So one thing I would point out to right now, and historically it's been true, is uh, education, right? I mean, the business community, for obvious reasons, has a vested interest in an educated workforce, and it also does have this kind of civic mindset that, you know, I don't mean to be naive about, and it's not a universal trait of Texas business, but um, you do see it, I mean, in things like HEB, like a large grocery retailer, you know, investing a ton of money into um, advocacy groups that will support public education, you also see it in kind of communities, right? So there's been a sideline for business communities in cities like Dallas and Houston to be primary supporters of the arts and, and culture infrastructure, which the state itself wouldn't really make much much room for in, in its, in its uh, skeletal budget. And then more recently, I mean, issues like water, for example, which, you know, building on our water infrastructure, um, that's the kind of issue that in a political context doesn't get much um, attention or elicit many, you know, letters of uh, letters from constituents and calls from voters. It's not like a, a high profile or visible issue, but it's one that is, of course, important to the long term future of the state. And so on issues like that, when they're being discussed, it's often because the business community has been proactive in going to the legislature and saying, hey, we actually need you guys to mm-hmm. focus on this. In your book, I think you uh, at one point cited the uh, economist Tyler Cowen. Uh, so I will do the same thing. In one of his books, he made the point that um, you know a, a lot of people like to argue that people in some red states are often voting against their own interests because a lot of them have a would have a stake in, for instance, uh, a Democrat uh, enacting some kind of redistributive policy, and that they would be disproportionately benefiting from it. So they make the argument that people are arguing against their own interests. I have to say that this has often kind of annoyed me, right? Like the Occam's razor explanation for why people vote should be because they're voting for the kind of society that they want. And if you look at the fact that Texas has attracted so many migrants from other states and not just from outside the U.S., right, I think there's something to be said for that, right? I think that that should carry a lot of weight in the argument, even if there are cases where, yes, people have voted against their own interests for a variety of complicated reasons. But I I guess that counter argument doesn't get quite enough play. And it was sort of something I thought about as I as I read your book. Yeah, you know, it's always annoyed me, too, and partly because, I mean, the entire point of voting is that you get to vote for what you construe as your own interest, not what somebody else construes as your own even if perhaps you're prioritizing things that you might later come to regret, I mean, it's the idea that people are just voting against themselves. It, it, it's it's a bit patronizing. And in Texas, of course, it wasn't true. I mean, so, I mean, if you look at like the data about the state in the past 15 years, I mean, we've seen economic growth, job creation across every income quartile, across every industry sector, across all regions of the state, even at a time when, you know, for several years, the rest of the nation was seeing the exact opposite. So, to me, I think that if you were living in Texas during this past 15 years, I and mean, things would have been going pretty well for you. Um, you wouldn't have have experienced the you know adverse effects of voting against your quote unquote own interests. Um, you would have actually seen your schools getting better, your state getting better, your your job opportunities getting better. Whether that can continue, you know, we'll see. But if it doesn't continue, then we'll see a change. There was something kind of uh, kind of uh, related to that that I wanted to ask about, and it has to do with this sort of emerging study of regional inequalities. Texas still does have, I think, as you mentioned, more people who live in rural areas than anywhere else in the country. But it's also the case that more and more people have been moving to the cities in Texas. And if you look at at a map of Texas, you can see like the blue clusters around like Austin and San Antonio uh, and Dallas and the other cities. Uh, And then the rest of the state looks mostly uh, red. 
What do you think uh, the impact is going to be um, on Texas? And should it should it be worried about this? Should it should it be worried that there's a kind of political ideology segregation throughout the state? I mean, what what, what has been your interpretation of that trend? It's been an interesting one to watch. I mean, certainly if you go somewhere like West Texas, which has a very distinct regional culture and identity and interesting politics. I mean, my friends from there have been in an interesting kind of, they've had an interesting vantage point on this year's election cycle or the last year's election cycle. Partly because, you know, it, I mean, there, there is sort of a, a blue dog Democrat tradition in places like West Texas. And, and but, you know, that it's been kind of challenged or, or questioned in interesting ways by Trump's version of, of populism, which is not really the same as, as they've historically supported as far as, I mean, state debates, I mean, you see this kind of rural versus urban slash suburban divide on things like education, school choice. I mean, of course, right now we're having a debate about vouchers in the Texas legislature and the proponents of vouchers, you know, represent suburbs and exurbs. And then there's, you know, the, the opposite coalition is rural and urban legislators who I think will actually prevail. But as far as it's turning into an ideological thing, I, I don't know. I think that actually we still think of each other all as Texans, um, even if we you know make fun of their, their sports teams. Um, so. <laughs> okay. So how about if we talk about a couple of contemporary uh, political topics then? I, I want to start by talking about uh, immigration um, before we talk about uh, trade uh, and NAFTA. I saw a headline from the Houston Chronicle the other day, and I couldn't click through the article because they have a very stiff paywall. But um, I saw some commentary about the article, and what it said was that up to half of the Texas construction industry included workers who were uh, undocumented. Um, and I guess I, I wonder what the like consensus Texas attitude towards Trump's policies on immigration, towards the potential for a lot more deportations, and just how the sort of the, the state regards its population of undocumented uh, immigrants. Well, so... Texas has one of the highest populations of undocumented immigrants in the country. Of course, it also has one of the highest populations of people in the country, so that makes sense. Um, but it's about 2 million, I think. And given our, our geography and given our history and given our industrial base, um, it is true historically that most unauthorized immigrants in Texas are economic migrants, right? I mean, they're, they're workers. And I'm sitting right now in front of my window, which overlooks a construction site. I mean, I, I, I've never asked the guys across the street, you know, if they're authorized or not, but I would guess that some of them are not, given the, uh, the numbers. And so I think for us, I mean, compared to people even perhaps farther from the border, there's, I mean, there's a sense that this is just a labor force phenomenon and, and not one that is, is a threat to public safety or liberty or our way of life. Now, politically, though, that's changed because there's been an increase in the sort of, you know, more hawkish rhetoric we've seen from national Republicans, from Texas Republicans. So for example, right now, they're having a debate about sanctuary cities, quote unquote, because most Texas cities have sanctuary type policies. So for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the term, this just means that the local authorities in those cities uh, do not take it upon themselves to try to root out who's undocumented and then report them to the federal authorities who would deport them. Is that is that more or less how that works? Right. Basically, it's just saying that, that local law enforcement police wouldn't, unless they have some other reason to ask, wouldn't act as immigration enforcement agents. And so, you know, the, the state's having this discussion now. And so the Democrats are, are countering it by saying, well, why don't we talk about sanctuary, quote unquote, industries? like construction, uh, like agriculture, that employ unauthorized workers. Because if we're talking about immigration enforcement or making this a priority of uh, of the state and of local law enforcement, let's make it a priority for them to enforce immigration law at the workplace, which is where most of our unauthorized immigrants are. So it's an interesting discussion. I mean, certainly in that sense, I mean, the, the state perspective, the public perspective, is different from the national public's perspective. And with the president and the Republican Congress, uh, not showing any sort of tempering of their attitudes towards the issue of immigration. 
it's an issue that was being forced in Texas in a daily way by things like deportations, raids, and, and so on. Yeah. Doesn't it put Texas politicians, though, squarely against the tradition of uh, Texas favoring whatever's good for the business community? Yeah, and also it puts Texas politicians, uh, you know, the state leaders in a position of going against tradition of being pro-Texas. I mean, putting Texas first, right? I mean, so there's this conflation now of Texas Republicans and national Republicans, which you know doesn't necessarily mean they're they're espousing ideas that are contrary to states' interests. But for somebody who's been used to seeing Texas Republicans say you know, we're not the same as every other state, you know, we're Texas, we're a unique state, and we will say so if necessary. Um, it's been kind of jarring to watch them not have that approach to things like the, the you know, Trump proposed border wall, quote unquote, I mean, which is, they support that in Texas now, I mean, the leaders do, which is strange, because, you know, a couple of years ago, everyone, no one would support that, and it would just be a, a silly idea. Our border is actually a river. So it, you, <laughs> I'm just waiting for an explanation of this. Right. Yeah. I should should note for our listeners who don't know, um, of the roughly 2,000 miles of border that the U.S. shares with Mexico, uh, I think about 1,200 or so of those miles are along the Texas border. I, I was actually going to ask you that next. Don't, don't people consider the idea of a wall um, to be somewhat of an imposition, um, at least for the people who live close to the border i i don't i don't have a sense for uh how actual people who live on the ground close to the border or in border towns uh regard this idea this sounds really reductive right and it sounds uh silly to me but like for much of the past year and a half i was sort of trying to figure out is the is trump talking about like a literal border wall like the great wall of china or just talking about um a metaphorical wall right and if you heard like texans talk about it they always they always kind of meant a metaphorical wall, they would say, oh, it's going to be a, a virtual wall composed of some physical barriers and some technological, you know, uh, because not only is it demarked by a river, the Rio Grande, it's, you know, the terrain varies. I mean, there's densely populated areas of the border, there's mountainous, rugged terrain. So the idea of building even a contiguous fence the entire way across would be hard to do. And it would be intrusive because you do have people who live like directly on the river, you've got towns that are right on the river. So as it stands, we have some areas where there's some sort of fencing or physical infrastructure just to separate and there's of course ports of entry but you also have areas where there's branches that border the river and so the amount of eminent domain action that you would need to use to take private property to build a wall i mean that in itself is going to be a huge issue in texas because people are are going to rightfully object to their property rights being uh infringed that way this might be a simplistic question but i mean aren't the republicans in office in texas worried that they're going to start getting voted out uh if enough people start to start to complain about this and start to realize what a what a pain in the ass it is. I, I guess the reason that they are not or that they would not be worried is that the Democrats have been so far back in recent cycles, right? So in 2014, the last time we had statewide elections without a president, presidential race on the ballot, the Republicans who ran statewide won by about 20 points. So a pretty healthy margin, right? Which creates some buffer from voters who are getting angry about things. But I think that looking back at this election, I mean, Republicans did not expect Trump to win, right? Nobody did. And the polling was clear. Like, the fact that he won, he was surprised to have won. And so, you know, they, they had this sort of buffer and leaders like the governor of the state, Greg Abbott, the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, supported Trump, but are now, you know, on the record as having supported his policies and his agenda. And they're being asked to support it actively because a lot of his policies and agenda directly affect Texas. And so I think if you're a Texas, if you're a Texan and you're thinking about a border wall going up, deportations at the border, families being broken up, NAFTA being renegotiated or perhaps repealed. I mean, these are things that that would adversely affect the state and which your leaders 
nominally supported. So it's it's an interesting time politically in Texas too. Yeah, I should note that uh, yesterday uh, or Monday, by the time people hear this earlier in the week, you were live tweeting uh, a meeting of the Texas State House of Representatives that was all about NAFTA. One of the points made uh, that you communicated via Twitter was that if you combine the Mexican and Texan economies, it would be the sixth biggest economy in the world. And you also noted that the entanglement of supply chains is such that 40% of the value of Mexican exports to the U.S. include some component that was originally made in the U.S. and was exported to Mexico first. I might I might be a little bit off uh, on my numbers, but the point is that it's not so straightforward as we sell Mexicans some things and the Mexicans sell Americans some other things, that this is actually something that to unwind would be massively complicated and massively disruptive. Oh, ma- massively. And, you know, it was the, the whole hearing, it was actually a, a hearing by a uh, the Texas House International Trade Committee. And so it's interesting because we don't quite know what policies Trump will pursue exactly, but we know what he said in the campaign trail, right? And we know uh, what the history of the state is and what its economic integration with Mexico is as it stands. And so you think about a scenario where Trump uh, wants to build a border wall, wants to pay for a border wall with 20% import tax, which would, of course, have, have very severe effects on Texas, which are our largest trading partners, Mexico. But then also Texas could then further face, you know, the impact of potential retaliatory tariff from Mexico on things like agriculture. The, the, the potential, if Trump pursues his stated plans, is actually pretty dire for the state economically. To, to relate a personal anecdote, uh a couple of weeks ago, I moderated a panel about the uh, Mexican economic and political outlook. Uh, and one of the points that uh, the panelists made was that actually the problem with renegotiating NAFTA isn't just limited to the economic damage, which wouldn't be insignificant, but there are still WTO rules to back it up. So it wouldn't, you know, it, it was it would be bad. But actually, it's also a political issue because NAFTA, in addition to securing trade patterns and things of that nature, also led to quite a bit of cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico on non-economic issues, on crime, on drugs, counterterrorism. And it also helped them establish how the two countries would trade with the rest of the world to agree on uh, certain issues. So I, I guess uh, I would imagine that this goes twofold for Texas and for its relationship with Mexico. So I, I guess I would ask you to, to talk about that. But also, why do you think that Texas politicians aren't being as aggressively vocal about this as, uh, say, politicians in California. And I bring this up only because, again, I saw an article about it that you uh, tweeted to, that you linked to the other day. I mean, what would explain why the latter question, why Texas politicians aren't being as vocal about it, is that they're Republicans. I mean, it's just politics, right? I mean, they, they supported the president. For them to be vocal about the president now would require breaking with not only the president, but with their own past selves, because they all supported the president. And when they supported the president, I mean, there was this sense, you saw us from the party on a lot of issues, not just in Texas, but elsewhere, that, oh, he's being metaphorical, oh, he's joking, oh, he doesn't mean it, this is just sort of, he's not being politically correct. And so now, I mean, we'll have a chance to see if he was being hyperbolic or, or metaphorical. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't feel that good about that, given what we've seen thus far. I mean, he's, he's actually pursued a lot of things he said he wanted to do. But for Texas, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the historical, cultural, economic integration of the states is, is deep. And, you know, yesterday hearing about it, I mean, there was a sort of repeated, I mean, there's a consensus, right, that we're closely related uh, economies, we've got a close bilateral relationship, we've got shared history, shared culture, shared families, shared friends. But if you're Mexico, I mean, yeah, you'd be looking at this saying, you don't, you're not really acting this way right now. 
which is especially strange given the obvious practical implications of the policies being proposed. Do, do you think that illusion that Donald Trump was speaking metaphorically, has it has it started to, uh, if not quite shatter, at least started to uh, disintegrate a little bit? I I would hope so. And honestly, I'm not I'm not entirely sure because I, I don't hear people saying that. Uh, I don't hear Republicans saying that. Um, and I'm not sure if it's because they don't want to admit that or, or because they are uh, kind of engaged in that interesting psychological motivated reasoning where you, you don't want to have been wrong or you don't want to think about what it means if you, if you were wrong. But I, I, I mean, certainly I think from Democrats I'm hearing, I'm hearing that, um, but from Republicans, much, much less so. What are you, what are you hearing? I mean, you're, you're in New York. I mean, what's your sense there? Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. <laughs> this is why I ask these questions because I'm, I'm sort of probing through this myself, but I, uh, I, I get the sense that disentangling those areas where Donald Trump is just trying to anchor everybody at a certain point so that eventually when something else is negotiated, it looks reasonable, even if it it wasn't, right? Where it was just a sort of a delusion put out there, but as part of a broader strategy. Disentangling when he's doing that versus when he's just essentially saying, yeah, no, this is what I plan to do. Stephen Bannon told me this was a great idea because he read some pop economics book in 2011 that told him it was a great idea. Um, And so, yeah, let's go for it and it'll work or it won't work, but he actually intends to pursue the agenda. Uh, I think it's something that everybody's still trying to work out. I will confess that I myself haven't worked that out yet either, right? So I'm sort of skeptical about everything the guy says, but at the same time, uh, I don't know when he's doing it just as some kind of a ploy, uh, a persuasion tactic versus when he actually means it. You know, I haven't worked it out myself. And I think, you know, it's, it's difficult for all of us to work out because we can't read his mind. But my sense of it has always been that, that he's he's speaking from the gut, that he's not speaking with any reference to a real ideological framework or, or, or policy position, but he's kind of emotional, intuitive, reactive. And so then, therefore, it becomes important what his advisors, how they backfill that with the actual details. I guess one of the reasons, I guess, that so many of us are still grappling with this also, even though we've now been exposed to Trump for going on two years in a political capacity, is that in the campaign, it was a binary thing. He just had to be persuasive enough to convince enough people to vote for him. Now that he's actually in office, his persuasion tactics actually bump up against hard realities, right? And it's hard to sort of know how his administration will adjust to it, because as you said, it's not clear that it's not just all chaos all the time, that that's just like his that's his way of doing things is to try to push the limits of extant institutions to see how far he can to see what he can get away with. And then he'll rein himself in. Or if it's not that strategic, it's just something where he's just kind of taking a, a slash and burn approach. Uh, and then he'll just insert himself into the devastation that that follows. Part of what's interesting about it or kind of adds to, I guess, the suspense and, uh, and intrigue we're currently experiencing as a nation is that. Since his party also holds power, since he can, you know, Republicans control Congress as well, and most of the states, or two-thirds of the states, his ability to sort of implement his agenda will depend on how it is received or whether people push back, right? So to your point earlier about the, um, the constraints we have in Texas on the executive, I think that, you know, there's pros and cons, right? I mean, you want flexibility, but also at this kind of context, it's nice to think about a state where the guardrails are just that clear, um, where it's actually just hard for the government to do more than you can do, where the, the government is part-time. It provides, I think, some some buffer against the potential for chaos and, and confusion. Erica, uh, you're working on a on a new book. I, I am. What uh, can you can you give us a little teaser on uh, what it's about? 
It's, I would say, a book I've wanted to write for years. It's going to be super, super... Awesome? Super awesome, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, part of it. Um, and I, I think I, I haven't announced what it is yet, and so I'm not sure if I can. I should ask the publisher, but I'm really excited about it. I, I hope others will be, too, when it comes out. It's a, about a very interesting and iconic Texan. About a very interesting and iconic Texan. There's, there's quite a few of those, I should note. Uh, so that, that, yeah, that doesn't narrow it down very much. But we'll let the, we'll let the mystery stand for a while. Erica, thanks so much for, uh, for being on Alpha Chat. Thanks for having me on. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks again to Erica Greeter for joining us. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. For our listeners overseas, that is plus one country code. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about the show. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Erica is on Twitter. Uh, Erica, remind me where you are on Twitter. At Erica Greeter. Simple enough. Uh, And finally, you can find show notes to this episode and all our prior episodes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Finally, I wouldn't dream of messing with Texas, but Texas better not mess with Amy Keene, our amazing uh, producer and editor. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.